Good? Yep. Awesome. Here we are. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Film Saves World. And guess who we have today? We have Donna Foley Mabry, uh, international best-selling author, uh, best known for her uh, book Maud, which is based on the true story of her grandmother's life. Uh, and she's also she's a prolific author. Uh, Donna, how many books have you written? Do you know the number? I have two still in my computer that will make it 35. Wow. Mm. 35 books. Right. Yes. That's incredible. And you have a massive fan base all over the world. And uh, I want to give a little bit of background on me and Donna. So this is a really exciting, unique uh, episode of Film Says World for me because I've never interviewed a member of my family. So <laughs> my Aunt Donna is my uh, mother's eldest sister. So what I enjoy about my Aunt Donna is she pulls rank over my mother, who fancies herself the <laughs> alpha of everything. But she pulls rank over my my mother, the nurse, Nancy. Shout out. Uh, Mike's mom is a nurse also. Mm -hmm. uh, so and uh, so we've always had a really special relationship ever since I was a little girl. I knew I wanted to be an actress. And Donna, your background is in theater, the arts, uh, acting, costume design. And uh, you became a, lit a literary celebrity in your 70s, which we're going to talk about, which is just absolutely incredible. So, cool. uh, so Donna, uh, let's kind of start what I Mike has a lot of great questions for you. But what I'd like to do is kind of start from the beginning a little bit. Uh, tell us where you're from originally. I'm from Detroit, and I'll qualify that by saying East Side. Mm. She's from Detroit, Detroit Las proper. Vegas. Detroit and Las Vegas have something in common. You're either mm -hmm. from the east side or the west side. Ah, okay. Oh, yeah. And you know, that's funny. That's true to L.A., too. You're, you're either in the valley or a west sider. Mm -hmm. uh, like, Mike and I were, I always fancied myself a valley girl out there. The west siders are by the ocean. Um, yeah. So, now, this, is, this will make our listeners from Detroit know you're from Detroit proper. You're not a suburban kid like me from Rochester Hills. Uh, what, what were the cross streets that you grew up on? Do you remember? We were a few blocks from the big stove when it was on the riverfront mm. and spent a great deal of my life walking back and forth to Belle Isle. Because mm. you, awesome. you talk about Jefferson Avenue in Maud. So, yes. Yeah. Um, okay, so you grew up in Detroit, and uh, who who raised you out there? Who primarily were the the people that the adults that come to your mind that really looked out for you out throughout your childhood? Well, I was fortunate to have two grandmothers. Mm -hmm. um, I was either in one house or the other, so they I raised me and nurtured me and pushed me. I got to say something funny because I always make you laugh when you get emotional. My mom said to me, wait a minute, you're interviewing your Aunt Donna on your podcast. Now don't make her cry, Shana. And I, and I said, when we talk about her family, she's going to start. And just know it's okay to get vulnerable. On oh, well, yeah. you know, I'm the person that when they show the soldiers coming home to their dogs, I'm going to make me cry now yeah. as a dog person. But it's emotional for, this is the point. It's okay to get emotional because, mm -hmm. the, you know, Maude is the true story of your grandmother's life, which we'll get into. So we're talking about real people who mean a lot to you. Uh, so the two grandmothers that, that were always there for you, what were their names? Well, there was Maude, 
mm-hmm. who was Maud Foley, Claver, Maud Claiborne Foley. And there was my grandma Mays, who was um, Ma, Ma, Ola May, M-A-E, mm-hmm. Merritt Mays. I'm trying to think how McGuffey came into that, but that was my great-grandmother's second husband. So disregard. <laughs> yeah, well, and it's it's it it's fascinating because uh they're both laid to rest at Forest Lawn Cemetery in Detroit. Yes. Where we filmed the mod teaser trailer. Uh yes. both uh both ladies and I Ola, my my mother um talks about her a lot because she also she also raised my mom. So uh, lots of interesting stories here because uh, now the mod fans listening are going to know what we're talking about. Your mother is in the book. Uh, she's Evelyn. This is your real mother in real life. She's my maternal grandmother. To me, she was known as Grandma Florida. <laughs> so she's Grandma Florida. To you, she's Evelyn. Drop dead gorgeous, like Elizabeth Taylor beautiful in her yes. younger years. Yes. And how old was she when she got pregnant with you? Seventeen. 17 years old. Okay, so this is hence the reason that the grandmothers basically raised you because she probably wasn't ready to be a mother at 17, right? So that's a huge part of Maud. And when my friends read the book, they're like, wait, 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 is Evelyn really your grandmother? And I was like, yes, she's really my grandmother. So lots of interesting, uh, interesting stories around that. So now getting back to your roots, your child growing up in Detroit, when did you um, get involved in the arts? When did you get involved in theater? Do you remember what film it was that you saw that maybe made you decide you wanted to be an actor? Oh, I, I grew up in a the movie theater. You know, my dad took me to the movies every weekend. He wasn't working or a stage show. Um, I don't know if I've told you this before, but I saw Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis on stage when they were Still what? Together. Wow. I don't think you told me that. I can't remember how young I was. I also saw Betty Grable and Harry James. Oh, my wow. gosh. That's you so even cool. know who Harry James is. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm <laughs> beginning to see Michael, the light. Though, I know, I'm so bad with names. I've learned. I'm such a visual person. If I see someone, I'm like, I know who that is. But great I don't company. remember anyone's name. But, yeah, yeah if I see him. Was, yeah, he course. was a great competitor. And um, other than that, we were at the movie theater. So I didn't really think about becoming an actor until one day I was a uh, freshman in high school and my Spanish teacher was watching me buzz around the room and he said, you come with me. And he took (laughs) me down to the auditorium and turned me over to the drama coach. I love it. Oh, wow. I I love that I'm hearing stories I didn't know. (laughs) Yeah, I'm laughing my 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 journey was so similar. Like when I did ballet, my teacher was like, "She's too talkative for this shit." Like, get this kid in theater. Uh, so okay, so you were it was freshman in high school. Uh, yes. Did you do you remember the first play you got involved in in high school or any of the oh, plays? Oh, I certainly do. It was <laughs> George Washington slept here. Mm. <laughs> that's awesome and were you an actor in it or did you work uh on the film uh, not film crew oh no i they gave me crew. um an old lady outfit i was the neighbor old lady and, <laughs> and a pair of shoes with cuban heels and that was my first role love it that's amazing that's and so you felt you fell in love with the theater 
I Wait. did. Yeah. Okay. You find your, and we're both theater people too. We or that's our background is theater. Oh yeah. Sure. So, so okay. Uh, and then you started to do. Was there a favorite role that you had in high school? Actually, uh, not on stage. We did Gidget the next year. Whoopie do. But uh, <laughs> my English teacher didn't believe in teaching plays. He believed in having us read them as if we were the characters. Oh, you um, know what? Such yeah. a great te teaching method. It so is. That way. It yeah. is. And uh, those, you know, if you, if you want to understand Shakespeare, you must see it performed by good actors. Yes. Yes. And so I was privileged to read uh, Lady Macbeth and, mm. and also um, Mark Antony. <laughs> mm. You know, the boys don't want to volunteer for this stuff. So you, <laughs> you, you make do with what, who, who's willing to stand up. And uh, that set me off on a lifelong love of Shakespeare. Mm. I, I'm, things are clicking for me. I've always loved Shakespeare, but you probably turned me on to Shakespeare. And my mom did. She talked to me about Hamlet when I was like in eighth grade and she talked to me about the story of it and I was sucked in. And I remember the summer of my fresh before my freshman year of high school, I was 14 and I read uh, Romeo and Juliet for fun. And I was excited. I understand this. I completely get what this guy is saying. Uh, when I never understood math, I was excited. I understood Shakespeare. Lady Macbeth is one of my dream roles. Macbeth, mm. knock on wood, fingers crossed. I, I'm like superstitious saying it out loud. Um, but... All right, so lots to chew on there. So, What's your favorite Shakespeare show, I have to ask? Oh, geez, I guess like everybody else, it would be Romeo and Juliet. Mm. I, every time somebody films it, I'm there. We've already mm. seen, we, we went to see the new West Side Story, and oh. then we came home and we watched the first West Side Story, and then we had to discuss that for three days. <laughs> and if you've not seen Boz Lerman's Romeo and yes. Juliet. Oh, know. it's one of my favorites. Oh. I love that. And oh. then, if you watch that, you need to watch the Olivia Hussey. Um, I'm writing it down. Oh yes. my God, I can't remember the actor who played Romeo. And then, just yeah. for laughs, watch the one that was filmed in the 30s with okay. a bunch of old people. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, yes. The actors were minimum 30. Uh, doing, Old people. <laughs> uh, John John Barrymore was doing a lovely um, Mercutio, mm. and and um, if you don't mind an edited script, it's worth watching in the sequence they were released to see how movies developed the play as they went along. Mm. You got the 1930s, you got the 1950s, you got the 19. 90s, I think, Buzz Lerman's was. Yeah, it was 96, yeah. Yeah, and now we have these two new treatments of West Side Stories, so. I remember yeah. being in eighth grade, literally drooling over <laughs> Leonardo DiCaprio <laughs> in the movie theater, and Claire Danes is one of my favorite actors, but Buzz oh, yeah. Lerman, his, his direction is great. I still watch that film and study it because it's just, he has such a signature as a director that you immediately know just by looking at it. Oh, this is one yes. of those films. Yeah. So, this Gatsby is so much better than the one yes. before. That one is very informative, mm -hmm. but Bos Lerman's Gatsby is just astounding. 
Oh, oh and let me not leave off Shakespeare in Love. Oh, oh yeah. I love so I love Shakespeare in Love, and I so love Gwyneth in that role. And uh, I forgot. Of course, I don't remember the name of the actor who played Shakespeare, but I thought he was awesome. Ray oh Fine. yeah, Rafe. Yeah. What's Ray his name? Fine. Or Joseph Fine. Fine. Or Ray Fine. Or, yeah. or his brother Joseph. Joseph. Yeah. One of those yeah. Fine. One of them. <laughs> One of those Fines. See, you guys are great with names. Um, oh, oh and my guess? favorite line from that movie is. Well, there's this apothecary. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember that? Oh, Everybody yeah. in the show thought he was the star. Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Donna, I can't skip this while we're talking about your youth. We're going to rewind a little bit more. Okay. So your father, uh, what was his name? Gene. Gene. And Gene Foley. Didn't he take you to the theater to see one of your all-time favorite films? Well, my all-time favorite film still, and I will defend it to this day, is Gone with the Wind. Mm. Now, let me explain this. I'm like, they had re-released it. I was not born in 1939. Okay. But I'm like eight, nine years old. Mm-hmm. And he took me down to the big United Artists Theater. That was back when the studios owned the theaters and they dressed them to the nines oh, to see been. it. And yeah. I'm sitting there and... Um, I'll get emotional. Here's Hattie McDaniel. Ah, yeah. Wow. And who was she to me? She was my grandmother. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. I mean, throughout the movie, you know, whenever Scarlett would sass her, she'd turn around and give her that look. Oh, Oh, yeah. She's amazing. I so identified with that movie. Yeah. And you know what? Listen, we're in a time, we talk so openly about so many topics on this podcast. We're in a very politically correct time, and I say that in air quotes. Gone with the Wind, uh, that film raised me too. It was constantly on in the background when I was a child. And I have to say, any scene between um, Hattie McDaniel and uh, Vivian Lee. Am I saying the right name? Now I'm second yes. guessing myself. Mm-hmm. Vivian Lee uh, is a master's class in acting. Those two it women, is. just just the exchange of looks. It's just I can watch it to this day, and I am like, this is the best acting on the planet. These Ever. two alpha women are Ever. kicking ass, mm-hmm. and, and just the dynamic Scarlett had with Melanie, the compassion Melanie has for her, the uh. And Rhett Butler, like the whole movie mm. is just so epic. Every scene is so epic. And it just, you know, listeners, when we talk about Gone with the Wind, yes, we could talk about the politics behind this and how, you know, they they made it seem like slaves had this great life. And that's not true. But historically, Hattie McDaniel, she was the first African-American woman to win an Oscar. Is that true? Do I have that correct? For best supporting actress, American of either gender to win an Oscar. Yeah. And here's an yeah. interesting side note. We're not going to talk about the slavery thing in depth, but at the premiere, she was allowed to go in Atlanta, but she had to sit in the balcony. Um, well, and who had her back? Clark Gable. Yes. I read this that she was not allowed at something at the Oscar ceremony or something like that, some sort of completely racist bullshit, excuse my French, but it's true. And I think Clark, didn't Clark say something like, if she can't go, I'm not going. He did. That's amazing. I love that story that he did that. Because without her, you have no movie. Yeah. She 
it, her acting, it, it, who deserved Best Supporting Actress more than Hattie McDaniel? Oh, never, ever. No one in the Hell history. Yeah. Of, it's she's no. just so. Oh, Legend. I just in my in my mind's eye, I just see her giving <laughs> Scarlett that side eye. Really oh yeah, low. and just oh, yeah. the way she would jab at her, and the scene where Charlotte, uh, um, Scarlett's shoving all the food in her mouth, <laughs> and she's saying, you know, men, men aren't gonna like you if you you eat this much, and you know. <laughs> I, oh, I, and the I, other I, line, I don't what? see him asking you to marry him. <laughs> <laughs> and just the the their dynamic was just so wonderful. We could we could have a whole podcast on Gone with the Wind, but I know that that film had a huge influence on you. And I think for women in film, you see in, you know, it's the the 1930s, these women carrying this film and they're truly, I mean, Vivian Lee carried that whole film. I think she's oh, in yes. every scene and it's just, it's um, the weight of it is tremendous and it's a huge piece of film history and the cinematography and the music and the direction, everything about it is just, and just the line let's not forget the costumes the oh, costumes yeah, yeah uh you know and the the line scarlet's father gives her that you have tara land is the only thing that lasts you know and it's it's a huge i i it's true <laughs> it's a huge there's so much there's so much about that film so that film was epic and um yeah so um Okay, so Mike, I want you to dive in for a second and ask some of your questions. It's a good moment to pivot here for a second. Okay. Yeah, no, I have uh, a lot. Uh, so I, I just want to hear about your journey, you know, as a writer in general, and, and what, how did you get started? Well, I was in creative writing in high school, and I had, I wrote on the newspaper, school newspaper, and I did have some poetry published in one of those teen magazines they had back then. Unfortunately, I did not keep the paperwork, the copies. Mm. Uh, any advice, because young people ask you for advice, I'd say keep everything. You might not like it today, but mm. believe me, 50 years from now, you're going to want to see it again. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I was in creative writing in high school, mm -hmm. and then I got married and had a family. And back then, that was what you did. How old were you when you got married? 19. 19 years old. Okay. And why was my first daughter named Melanie was born? Uh, I didn't start college until I was 30. Now, the reason I didn't go to college when I graduated high school was I had to support myself. I didn't, I didn't have money uh, and working full time did not leave me an avenue to go to college, but I always wanted to go. My high school course was college prep. So when I was 30, I started taking classes and I took everything I needed to get my degree except the math. <laughs> and then he said, you have to repeat advanced algebra. I became a college dropout because I did it in high school and I passed and I was not going to do it again. So there. I feel where, that. I get that. I hate math so much. Where, um, where, okay. So your husband was in the military. So you guys did a lot of traveling, correct? And so, um, where, where were you at college when you were 30 and you went back to college? Where were you located at that point? My first college was Oakland U. Oh, in Rochester? Yes. 
I didn't know that. My mother went there for her master's. That, okay. Yeah. That's right by me. Oh, yeah, yeah, right yeah, yeah right. she's just a show off. <laughs> <laughs> she's our okay, science. And then we, I, so I went there for a year or so, and then we moved to Florida, and I went to Manatee, which at the time was a community college, and it's now a university. And I'm not saying I gave them a leg up. <laughs> and you were so, in Venice, Venice, Florida, correct? Venice, Florida, south of Sarasota on the Gulf Coast. Got it. And this is where I would visit. Florida, Venice is the best place. I I, I have great memories there from childhood. I remember the beaches having very white sand. Yes. Siesta Key is rated as the best beach in the world. I believe it. I I need to go immediately. I didn't know that. I'm going to write it down right now. Um, How did you know that you wanted to be a writer, though, Donna? What was the initial click that said, I want to write? Well, I also acted in high school. And then when we moved to Florida, my daughter is uh, this fabulous singer. And she fell in love with this little redheaded guy in high school. And his mother was the costume designer for the local theater. Mm -hmm. And so I volunteered to make costumes. And of course, they're auditioning. Well, try to keep me out of that. (laughs) So I spent the next 35 years, either because I am vocally impaired when it comes to carrying a tune, I I could not perform in musicals. So if I was not on stage in a drama, then I was making costumes. I go, geez, I did uh, help with sets. I was stage manager once. Uh, that's a harder job than anybody knows. I've been a stage oh, manager yeah. oh, in college. Yes. I think I got, I got, I was about to graduate. I got three credits for being a stage manager in The Shape of Things by Neil LeBute. But I was like, oh, okay, yeah, but continue. Yeah, they run the show. Mm-hmm. So that's what I um, I did when, and I learned costume making, which is very different from making clothing. Mm-hmm. That you wear on the street. From and I, Donna, I want to interrupt and brag about you for a second. Donna is as talented as a costume designer as she is an author. Her costumes are out of control. Amazing. If you mm-hmm. wanted to have that path, that career, uh, you could have easy, you could have, I won't, I won't say the word easy, uh, but every time I watch Project Runway with my mom, we always say Donna's better than this person. She could do that. She's better than that person. <laughs> oh. it's incredible you. costume design. Yeah. Well, that's what led me to Las Vegas. Uh, I was making costumes for the theater and, my daughter uh, spent 15 years on the road as an actor. Um, and then she came to Las Vegas and took a day job. And she was the director of entertainment at one of the casinos here, paying a great deal of money for the costumes. And she mm-hmm. said, you know, my mother can do this. Mm-hmm. So they hired me to, to, you know, I did a few things for them and they hired me to come out two or three times a year and I would be here for several weeks and I would sit in the girls dressing room and I would be making costumes and they'd be chattering da 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 da. And then for this one time, they were talking about uh, a casino owner. Now, mind you, almost all of the casinos now are corporate owned. Mm -hmm. There are still a few that are individually owned. And he was obviously coming down with a mental disease, dementia, Alzheimer's, something like that. And I was sitting there thinking, boy, somebody could write a book about this. Mm. And so it became my first book. And 
Now, mind you, I was technically inept, but everybody in it was based on a real person. So I had great characters uh, working for me. And it turned out I was very good at dialogue. And then I had a great story because I used real people and their life stories. And um, I found a publisher that I won't brag about because um, if you ever get your hands on the first edition, it's it's got a lot of boo-boos in it. <laughs> is this book, it, Donna, yeah. is this is this the last two aces in Vegas? Yes. But yes. it's been revised and okay. it's now out on audio as well and hard. Oh nice. But it's been it's been uh, cleaned and re-released, thank God. But they owned it for eight years. So I couldn't do anything until that contract was up. But it but oh what happened next was I had 120,000 words and they said, I'm sorry, we won't go over a hundred thousand words. So I took out a character. I just lifted him right out of the book. And then I had that book and I worked all over town selling it and it, it sold well. And I had 20,000 words. So I wrote the next book in the series and that, set me off on a roll and they just kept coming into my head. I did a painting of myself once with me standing there with no face, but I've got all these people on or in my head. Well, and Donna, this is fantastic because, you know, Mike and I discussed this a little bit prior to you joining us, him and I, uh, we, we both, he said, you know, I have so many, uh, story ideas in my head. And I just, I, I've never written a novel. I've always wanted to, it's the mechanics of how to do it, how to do it. And I said, I'm the same way. So as you just said, uh, it's like you had these great characters based on real people and real dialogue. So as a new writer, uh, what I love about you, I love so many things about you, but one thing I love about you is your confidence and you don't allow not knowing to stop you. So you were determined to write a book. So as someone who did not have the experience writing novels, how did you um, harness this idea? And what was your process to start writing? Did you just crank out Microsoft Word? Or what was your process to start writing a novel? I bought a computer. (laughs) (laughs) I had a typewriter, but that wasn't going to cut it. Uh, Thank God God for my copy editor. Shout out to Joyce Mokri, who... takes my bacon out of the frying pan every time I'm ready to publish because I'm not the greatest typist in the world. But, you know, as I said, young people are always asking me, how do I do this better the next thing? Yeah. Um, The first thing I would tell you to do is stop thinking about a book. Mm. Think about your main character. Mm. And write that down. Write him. Just just give him a life. Mm -hmm. And... Think about the worst thing that ever happened to him and maybe write that. And then maybe the best thing that ever happened to him. Now, these things will not necessarily be in chronological order. Um, I told this to a cop friend of mine who really, really needed to write a book because he's got like 30 years on the force. Mm -hmm. I said, sit down in front of your computer as if you were talking to me. Mm. And tell it what you see in your head. Mm. Now, if you want to get technical, 
I did not know uh, you stay away from the words that end with ing. I've learned that since. You try to avoid the words that say was, had, that, get. There are a lot of words you avoid because of the way they impede the action. The mm -hmm. best advice you can get is from Stephen King. He wrote a book called On Writing. Love it. It's wonderful. The first yeah. half of his biography, yeah. which will keep you from getting discouraged because he had like 56 rejection letters mm -hmm. <laughs> before he, he got his first book. But the second half of that book is a basic how to write fiction. Mm. Uh, Reading it. Well, I you read read that, this, Mike? Yeah, it's amazing. I, yeah. yeah. I read that second half every once in a while just to okay. sharpen up. And I go to class every Tuesday because I meet with other writers and I, I take what I wrote this week and I read it to them and they tell me what's wrong with it. Ooh, that's good. You need that because your friends either don't know or, or they, they don't want to hurt your feelings. Yeah. So you need other people and you can't, you know what? Writing is a great deal like acting. If you're going to get your feelings hurt, Stay home. Yeah. <laughs> one That's time, great advice. One yes. time, Donna, I was talking to you about, this is a few years ago. I remember I was in LA. I, I was across from, uh, Mike, you used to work there. Oh, Roma? Roma Cafe. I pulled oh. over and the purple trees were out. So it must have been spring. And I pulled over and I was on the phone with Donna, one of our epic phone calls. And I was talking about some ideas I had for a film and I said, you know, I worry, though, it stops me because I'm worried people are going to know who it's based on and I don't want to upset people. And Donna, you said to me, if you think like that, you are never going to get anything done. Mm. And it's so true. I'm just worrying about tiptoeing around other people's feelings or walking on eggshells because you've taught me that a lot of characters start with what you know and then they they spin off and evolve into something else yes and you have to give yes. yourself the space and the permission to to do that as a writer forget when i say world podcast this is a master's class in writing for donna foley mabry to our listeners so honestly yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when i first started writing mod my mother was still with us and mm -hmm. uh, oh, okay. she, she was very upset that i was writing this book I didn't know that. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> Love it. And uh, so even though I thought I was finished, I did not publish it. And I'm so glad I didn't because I'd be going along and I'd remember something mm -hmm. and put it in. And I'd remember something else and put it in. And uh, after she passed, I brought it out. And then I was afraid to have the family read it. <laughs> oh, wait. So let's let's back up because I'm, I'm, I'm like, I don't know names, but I know dates. 2011, uh, 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 Grandma Florida, Ethelyn Burdett passed. And when was Maude released? Was it 20, what, 16, what year? 2016. 2016. Okay. So, okay. So, but, but I think I remember the momentum building a couple of years later after she passed. Yeah. That's why. Okay. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, it came out and your mother read it. Yeah. And I was just really nervous to see what she was going to say about the way I presented our mother. And she, <laughs> she said, well, that's the way she was. Mm. So for, for a lot of things, I wrote the truth as I knew it. Mm -hmm. um, it was not everybody's point of view. 
it was Maud's point of view. And unfortunately, Evelyn did not come off well, but it was you know, Maud's and I, point of view. And Donna, I got to say, it's so interesting. When I look at things, even things I've written and directed, I try to sit in the seat as though I'm an audience member and I'm not part of it. Yes. And reading Maud, this was my grandmother. I don't judge Evelyn. I think this girl was in survival mode. Yes. She got pregnant very young. She was panicked. Um, and your father was madly in love with her and took care of her. I see someone trying to survive um, in a time when, you know, birth control probably wasn't talked about, uh, th those kinds. And she was the oldest of how many children in the house, your mom? Well, my youngest uncle's only three years older than I am. Okay. She was the oldest of seven. Now, let me say, um, not to get on a backseat bandwagon, my grandma Mays had 11 children. And during the course of their childhood, she had to bury five. Uh, they were not stillborn. They were children. Mm -hmm. And they got the whooping cough or they got the measles or they got this or that. And they died. This was a lot. There was, there was no vaccine when right. she was losing her children. So, yeah. And my, but my mother was the oldest surviving child. And there were six after her. And a lot of the burden of the oldest child was put on her head which of course being the oldest, I totally get it. I'm, mm -hmm. I've always felt a great responsibility for my three younger sisters. Absolutely. And, and my grandmother, uh, Evelyn, is so interesting. We've got this whole women that are workaholics in our family. You, me, yes. Melanie, my mother, all yes. of us. Uh, my mom always said to me, my mother taught me how to work. She was always working. She was always working. Wasn't she working in factory? Did she work at, was it Ford or where? what factory was she working in? She worked at, remember the big stove on the waterfront? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The United Rubber Company before it was Uniroyal. I knew that. She, yeah. she lost her hearing. From working in that factory. Yes, my grandmother, my grandma Florida was always very hard of hearing, was always wearing hearing aids. So we always had to talk, uh, you, you know, make it have consciousness while speaking to her that she was hard of hearing. Uh, she didn't use sign language. And one of my fondest memories of my grandma Florida was uh, we used to write letters to each other when I was a child. We was uh, like, and I remember her cursive writing. I remember the floral pieces of paper I would get from her and my mom would always say your grandma loves it when you write her letters so it's interesting you know we when it's there's no relationship on the planet more complicated than mother-daughter we know this oh, it's no. complicated she's your best friend you fight you like it's all it's all these things and you and Melanie have that me and my mother have that so when you're that close to it, you're going, oh, am I going to hurt her feelings? I'm going to No, as an audience member and as her granddaughter, I look back and go, wow, what a tough time to be a young woman. And she was yes. that drop dead gorgeous, but she was also a target to men. And uh, being that beautiful, like Elizabeth Taylor stunning in her youth, um, my, my grandmother, my dad's side, Millie would always say, your grandmother was beautiful like that. She was beautiful. Uh, but, yeah. you know, she she was in survival mode and didn't know how to be a mother and um, 
had you very young and it was uh the uh you know it was your dad that stepped in to really to help her out and it's uh so it's so interesting as we talk about mod you're known for being prior to publishing mod uh your 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 books are primarily fiction based murder mystery yes. a lot of that fun stuff fast paced in vegas and then who told you hey you should you should take your grandmother's stories mod stories and make it a book who told you to do that you remember shelby. i think it was shelby my best friend and also well, melody she, one of the reasons there was the delay between grandma diane and me publishing it I thought it was finished and I gave it to her to read. And she says, no, you got to start over. Shelby said this. I wrote it as third person. Oh, and she good let note. Good her note. tell her own story. Oh, okay. So it was one, and uh, which required not just the she to I, a lot of the, uh, of the wording had to be changed. For instance, she would never say sex. Mm. they had relations oh, okay. <laughs> yeah yeah donna so there was you, a, a lot of that Donna, okay. something you told me about maude that i love such a character thing you said when she was praying she's having a conversation with god like he's in the room yes yes and i love that note it, it, it tells me so much about this woman and her faith and uh so, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I know, Mike, we're going to jump back and forth between your questions and the development of mod um, and how let's talk about the mechanics of this, Mike. I kind of want you to lead this conversation. So you're a published author. Now, say you you write your first book. Um, now, mod was not your first book, but oh, no. this, this oh, no. was this is what was a hit on Amazon self-published correct yes okay so can you talk to us about that process like what and this that can you tell us if you remember off the top of your head the statistics around it uh it was on the wall street journal's bestseller list was it for 16 consecutive weeks 16 weeks, weeks in a row yes uh new york times i don't know what they're doing now but at that time would not list a self-published author no matter how many books they sold mm -hmm. so i would never made it to new york times mm -hmm. but i was on wall street journal uh for 16 weeks in a row always on the ebook side and sometimes on the paper book side it wasn't out in uh, audible till a little bit later uh, when you have a bestseller like that uh agents call you so my agent mm -hmm. call uh, an agent from trident wonderful group called me and said he'd like to represent my overseas rights and the audible rights so he he managed to get the audible with this wonderful young actress reading the bard and uh you read the audiobook donna <laughs> <laughs> i read the audiobook you guys shane again is the narrator it of was, it, was uh, <laughs> it was published in italy and in germany and in Russia, and is just now gaining momentum in Russia, cool. which I think is interesting, seven, eight years later. Wow. Um, yeah. 
Wasn't it the best-selling ebook of all time at one point? It is. Something? It uh, is the best-selling ebook. It's classified of all time. as nonfiction. Even though in the beginning, nonfiction it, ebook. I explained I could not remember some of the names from her childhood, like her sister. And at that time, now I could go back through Ancestry now, mm-hmm. but I ain't going to do it uh, and clean that up. So I did use the word fictionalized because I, I just made up the names. They might have been accurate because your mind never lets go. Of yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and I filled in some of the conversations, for instance, the reason this came about was uh, I spent every weekend at my daddy's house and I slept with my grandma. Mm-hmm. And she talked me to sleep. Maud. Okay. Maud. Yeah. So she would tell me all these stories and it was fascinating to me. And she didn't, she worked so hard sunrise to sunset. She didn't have time except for Sundays to go see a woman friend. And the only woman friend I remember her ever having was my aunt Bessie, George's mm-hmm. sister. Mm-hmm. So she would tell me all this stuff and I would just eat it up and fall asleep with her talking. So all of this information was stored in there somewhere. But I did use the word fictionalized, uh, although I say it's like she gave me a paint by number kit mm. that had a spot of blue over there that needed filling in and a little spot of yellow. So it's like 99.9% her telling me and one or two things of me filling in. Well, and it's so fascinating because it's the process, it's a child's, it's a granddaughter's memory, which is so interesting the way we remember things as kids. And of course that we all, the, sometimes the reality is a little fuzzy, but you can, it's so interesting. Um, When I came came to the part of the story where I entered it, Mm -hmm. I had to really be careful not to make myself more important than I was. Because you know you tend to blow yourself up in importance, so I, I really struggled <laughs> to keep perspective. Yeah, of myself. Mike, you had a question. Go for it. I, I'm just intrigued, and 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 um, that you you mentioned you, that you self published mod. I didn't realize that. So I then, how do you get it to a place? I mean, number one bestseller on Amazon. And 16 weeks on Wall Street Journal's top 10 list. How do you get it there? I mean, with is it just all word of mouth or did you have any marketing at all? Uh, it was Amazon released it in all their Amazon uh, pages all over the world. Oh, okay. But I'd been publishing books for a while. Um, my first experience was not happy. So I said, forget that. I'm just going to do it myself. And I have to say my daughter does all of the technical work. And she made me up a poster for my signing about a, two months after it hit the stands. And she listed all these reviews. And I said, oh, my goodness, look at all these reviews. Well, little did I know. Martha told Jean and Jean told Joan and Joan told Rebecca. And that's the way it happened. Word about I now, awesome. I now today have more reviews for Maud than to kill a mockingbird. Wow. Yes. I'm going to look it up right now to see how many reviews exactly you have there. Let's check it Look it up. Look it up. (laughs) I'm going to look it up right now. Yeah, Mike, great questions. What a cool accomplishment, though. I mean, that speaks volumes to the 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 power that the book carries and the the passion that you put into it. It's 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 apparent. So um, 
amazing. It's so so important too, as filmmakers, you know, independent filmmakers, a lot of people say, oh, well, I'm a director. I don't, I'm not doing any of the marketing. I don't do it. Listen, if you're, if you have your, if you just cranked out an indie film, you, you put your blood, sweat and tears into, and I'm talking to the audience right now, our listeners, you got to tell your friends, please, you know, write a review, talk about what this film did for you, post it on social media, whatever. And that word of mouth is everything because, and you can't have shame in the game of that because how else are you going to get your work out there unless you have, you know, Oprah's PR working for you. You have to, and social, the power of social media, we all know it can be very negative, but for people in our line of work, the reason I have, if I was a nurse, I would have deactivated all my social media years ago because I wouldn't need a networking forum. But (laughs) as an actor, writer, director, it can be a very powerful tool that we have that you were able to communicate that way. So yeah. Reviews are the lifeblood of the publishing industry. I got one bad one, and it was from a man who said it was horrible that she did not love all her children the same. Oh, deep. Oh, and you know, mothers all say, oh, I love you all the same. But if you've got a house full of them, some of them you like more than others. (laughs) (laughs) You love them all. Sure, sure. But wait, let's talk about that for a moment. Okay. As I adapted Maud into the screenplay, because I did, I'd have to take breaks and walk away from my computer because I would start crying. Yes. Because that's how freaking good this book is. Now, I want to talk about, oh, she didn't love all her children the same. Number one, I wouldn't say that's true. I would say there's trauma responses. Now, she gave birth, Maud gave birth to her son, which son was this, when she was living with that grandmother, with George's mother. Which son was this? Was it Jean? That would no, be it wasn't Jean. William. We William. And we all I knew him as Bud. Or what no, was it Bud? Was it Bud? Bud. Okay. Yes. And then she gives birth to this child. And doesn't the grandmother take him away the out of the Grandmother came and took him away. To yeah. her room and only brought him back to feed. So there was no real bonding, bonding there. Right. And that, that the psychology of that and the trauma attached to that is deep. And Mike, as yes. a therapist, I know you're, th- this is going to make be- bells and whistles go off for you. It's not about Maude not loving one child. She did love the him. Other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's but it's him. it's trauma attached to the circumstance of this very dominating, uh, intimidating woman mother-in-law. In and mother-in-law taking away this baby in that moment. So there's a cause and effect to everything and a lot of subconscious traumas that happen to Maude, uh, which is why so many people relate to the book. Uh, but I just wanted to say that. So, yeah. And there was huge trauma of when my father was born and the doctor told her he was dead and put him, wrapped him up, put him under the bed. And after the doctor had left, he started crying. So that was a huge trauma. And I think that was uh, her relief. And I think that was partly responsible for her extreme attachment to him. She thought she'd lost him, but she hadn't. She, he thought he put a stillborn baby under the bed in the book. Yes. I know your readers will remember this. And she wakes up to the sound of him crying. Yeah. Was this Jean? 
Jean, yeah. That's your dad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, by the way, I looked it up. Mod, does this sound right? Two, 15,258 reviews, 15,000, or is that just the audiobook? No, that should be reviews altogether. 15,258 wow. reviews on Audible. I'm not Audible. On Amazon. On Amazon. All the books, yes. Yeah. That's incredible. What else, Mike? Fire it off. I, I'm no, I'm just in all. I'm, I'm this is awesome, Donna. I mean, I'm very impressed by you. It's an incredible story and amazing. Uh, that you're, I mean, 35 books just that just blows my mind. I mean, like we talked about, Shane, I can't even write one, like, like even start one. So, like, what gets you motivated? What keeps you, what kept you so motivated to keep writing, not just Maud, but just all of your books? Mm -hmm. Well, like I said, I have all these people in my head. But I mm -hmm. had written oh a half a dozen murder mysteries set in Vegas, mm -hmm. and my middle sister, the one who lives in North Carolina, Linda, she says to me, "Can't you write something more uplifting?" <laughs> <laughs> so you write Maud? No, I'm just kidding. That's the exact words So I, I said, "Okay, I'll write a, a historical." So I wrote a book named Jessica. And it was fairly well received. And then um, I wrote a sequel called The Cabin. And The Cabin was very well received. It put my grandson through his first year at Boston University, cool. which it cost as much as Harvard. Wow. <laughs> and um, there was, oh, no, wait a minute. Jessica came first and then Pillsbury Crossing. Jessica is the story of an independent woman. You may notice this as a theme in the books I write. Pillsbury Crossing is my version of Romeo and Juliet. Mm, okay. All right. That was based on the children from the first book. And then the cabin is their child. And that's the one that really took off on its own. And But the thing about writing historical fiction when you set it in the west is you still have to kill people <laughs> so maybe it was more uplifting maybe not and then i i lived in manhattan when my husband was in the army my daughter was born at irwin army hospital at fort riley so i set my westerns there because they do say write what you know pillsbury crossing is a real place and uh i when i had finished those three books. One of my faithful readers said she was very much interested in the Indian girl, the, uh, the Kansa girl, and she wanted her to have her own book. Mm. So I wrote her story and that's called Kimamela. And that's in the um, library at the Kansa reservation in Oklahoma. Oh, very cool. Kind enough to include her here, there. And I really do love that. You know, you your books are like your children. You do have your favorites. Yeah. And well, what is your favorite? Well, three guesses as to that. Uh, Maude is one, right? Yeah, Maude <laughs> changed my life. Yeah, Maude did change your life. That she made did change my life. <laughs> and, uh, and then I wrote another book of another family from Manhattan. Um, and that is the... Started with Darcy Curran, and now it has five. I took them from 1860s up through uh, women getting the vote. Mm. 
Mm. And it was the generations of the women in that family. Although one of them is definitely a man's story. If you want to read a Western, read Dan Kerr and Quinn, because guys like guy books. Well, and also when you say voting and women getting the right to vote, that's a huge part of Maud that so many women and, and men appreciate when she gets to vote for the first time. And it yes. it, it really, it just, it, it's so intense to read how some of the men would beat their wives or trying to go vote. And George, Maud's husband just was like, whatever, go do your thing. And she was so excited standing in that line and getting, you know, the right to vote and just that sense of independence she always craved by, you know, taking sewing gigs and hiding money from her husband just a little I, bit. She hit her money, yeah. She hit her money because she wanted that sense of independence. And yes. it's just so relatable even today to women. And um, what I, I want to pivot here for a little bit, uh, a second. So we are on, you know, this is a filmmaker podcast, but so so Don and I talk about movies all the time and how to turn things into films. And you were certainly one of my consultants uh, for Secret and um, to showing you the first version and then the edited version and then the final version. And we attended film festivals together for that that piece. And, uh, you know, our your fans know we're turning Maud into a movie. And I want to talk about the process of indie filmmaking. Um, Mike and I just talked about this. We did an Indiegogo right before the pandemic and hit the, the everything hit the fan the last two years, we raised right. a grassroots campaign about $28,000. Uh, to our listeners, 28 grand will pay for a short film. Uh, Maud is going to be a, probably a miniseries and it's going to cost about 10 to 20 million. So we're going to get some heavy hitters and executive producers in here. Um, I'm signed on to play the lead role and to direct the film. And if you take the time to watch the teaser trailer, anyone listening who hasn't seen it, Donna's not only a great, great writer, she's a tremendous actress. When we were on set, and I say on set, I mean Forest Lawn Cemetery, she had never seen her grandmother's grave. Flew out from Vegas to Detroit, and I remember it was a windy, kind of cloudy October day. And I went up to her as her director and almost started giving her direction. And you said to me, you don't need to do this. And I was like, <laughs> all right. And I just let her walk up and do her thing. And I thought, get out of the way, because she emotionally was there. Your acting is phenomenal. And it, it, I know people could say, oh, this wasn't acting. It is, though. It, it's a merging of reality and trying to tell a story and the way how great you are on camera. That is also a master's act, a class in acting, because not everybody can do that. Um, so we are in the process of still doing our capital raise for Maud. Um, to get this film made. And as we learn to live with the realities of a pandemic and as Hollywood sets are now reopening up, we're going to make this film. The dream is to shoot it in authentic locations. It's in Michigan, um, uh, Tennessee. Tennessee and Missouri. Missouri. And um, I'll actually be in Missouri this September directing a short. So it's going to, I'm going to get to take a look at those landscapes out there, which I'm excited about. But not only are you, we turning Maud into a film, but you know, Mike noticed when he looked at your website, you're, you've written some screenplays too. Uh, we want to talk about that. And we've also talked about turning killer, killer coffee into a film or series. And um, you want to talk to us about your screenplays, please do anything you want to talk about there. Well, I completed one that uh, it's waiting for me to begin submitting it on a song I wrote. Um, 
I wrote a while back, I saw Loretta Lynn and um, Kelly Clarkson being interviewed, both of them saying there aren't enough old fashioned story songs. And I thought, well, I can write those. Mm-hmm. So I, I wrote up 14 songs enough to make an album. And one of them, and like my books, I tend to write songs about people I know. Mm-hmm. One of them is my grandpa Mays' story. And one of them is my grandma Mays' story. And one of them is a stepfather's story. It's called The Bartender. And I love I, that. I, it's, great. it's a great screen. I love that. Mike, uh, you should read it. It's great. I, was, oh, I would love yes. to. I was so in love with the song that I wrote it as a short story. Mm-hmm. And then I said, well, if somebody did want to shoot a short film that could be done in one set. In the bar. Uh, most of it takes 90% in the bar, um, a, a few scenes in an automobile and a few scenes in this guy's bedroom. Um, he takes a friend home who's too drunk to drive. That's one set contemporary clothing. So except for going to Goodwill and getting some uh, uh, camouflage clothes, it's all about veterans, actually. And uh, it really, because of the age group of my neighborhood and my writing friends and everything, it really struck a chord with them. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of them are veterans. And so they have lived this story themselves. So that's that's the, the screenplay that's finished that uh, I would like to get started work on and it wouldn't be expensive to make. Absolutely. Cool. And then I thought I also okay, let me let me also tell you about Molly. Um, I was watching the Maltese Falcon for the 800th time. <laughs> and I said to my head, what if Molly were a woman? So I began writing the Molly, the case files of Molly Evers, 1947. And there's six of her cases in that book, which I then published. And I had more stories up there. So I wrote 1948 and that's on the market. And now I'm working on 1949 and I'm into the third segment for that book. And I'm thinking this would be a great TV show. You know, the late 40s. Molly is a Rosalind Russell type. She, uh, she, her mother took her to the movies all the time or sent her when she was too busy to take her. So she tells you her partner, Jake, would make you think of Ward Bond. And her lover, who's a Detroit cop, would make you think of, um, God, his name's gone right out, not Randolph Scott, the other Western actor. Anyhow, she relates everybody to someone she's seen in the movies. Mm-hmm. And I think that would be a really fun TV series. Mm-hmm. Donna remember- is never empty for ideas. Literally, every Love time it. we talk on the phone, it goes from, how are you, catching up on family stuff. And then it's a brainstorm, it's a brainstorm session between us and, and, and pro- <laughs> projects. And it never turns, it's never one subject. It's always, okay, we've got five film ideas here. And it's a production mm-hmm. meeting. So. Um, Oh, it sounds great. Any other if, questions? Yeah. We, yeah. Well, I still, I just want to know, Donna, when you sit down, I know you mentioned, you know, don't think about it. And that's great advice. Don't think about, I'm going to write a book, right? Don't think about right. a book. Right. 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 And I love that. That's, a, that's really good. So what gets you, um, 
What gets you started though? When you sit down, what is your process? Do you, do you have an outline though? Do you say, no. okay, here's nothing. No, just, just sit and write. I sit to my computer. I've got a person in my head and then I write down whatever he or she does in my okay. head. Mm. Such good advice. You're going to be excited to write. I know, I know, because I overthink. That's my biggest downfall is I overthink everything. So I okay, it, well, it, you know, Larry McMurtry, mm -hmm. somebody once said to him, everything you write is a bestseller. How do you do that? And he said, well, you know, when you're reading a book, the parts you skip, mm. the guy said, yeah, he said, I don't write that. I love that. Yes. You know, you know, something I... Uh, Quentin Tarantino, I heard him say in an interview recently, and I really related to this. He said, I never took a screenwriting class. I learned how to write for my acting classes. And I write what I would want to do as an actor. And I focus on the dialogue. And he said, if I'm in a big fight with a girlfriend in my real life, that's going to make it into that screenplay. Oh, yeah. It's going to get in there. <laughs> and I think about those nuanced moments between people. And as an actor, think, what would I want to, what would I want to say as an actor? What kind of moment do I want to chew into and what's real and authentic to me? But I think I, I kind of see it the way you're talking about this, Donna, as a metaphor, like say your house is a mess and you're like, oh, I need to clean today. Right. If you just look at the bigger picture and go, I'm overwhelmed, let it know where to start. I'm going to leave and I'm driving through Starbucks instead. I can't, I don't even know where to start. But if you just focus on, I'm going to clear off my desk today. That's it. So if you focus on those smaller goals as a writer, like, all right, Mike's writing a scene between two male best friends. For some reason, they're locked in a room together. Just start there, whatever it is, or what does he do in a day for his morning routine or whatever? It, it makes the process less overwhelming and it makes it more fun and gives that writer a start. I love I love that advice and I'm going to take it. Mm -hmm. It's that you're also a great teacher, Donna, teaching Thank writing. You. And um, yeah, what else? What else, Mike? Oh, I could talk for hours. I mean, I just, I'm trying to think how to not make this 12 hours long because I have so many questions. But well, I, uh, no, yeah, I love it. I, I love talking I am, to you. Though. I am free until five o'clock. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Uh, yeah, no, I just, I'm fascinated. I, I, I'm absorbing everything. I'm processing everything you're saying because I, um, you're right. You got to just sit down and uh, and think about the audience too. Like you said, take it out of the context of um, of the overthinking, where it does become, like you said too, Shana. You you put yourself into the audience and imagine what is is this something that no one would want to skip past? Like you said, Donna. Where well, and not. this this is interesting too. Like I, this is where I have have had a lot of fun in the past writing monologues for actors. When mm -hmm. I start, if I were to write a monologue for Mike as a person, you know, and I think about the cadence and the delivery in the which that way that actual person speaks when I'm writing yes. and cater it to that individual because I know what their tone and delivery is going to sound like when they're doing this. And what's so fun about writing is it evolves, right? Like I wrote a monologue back in like 2012 called The Angry Bartender. And this stemmed from my last day as a bartender when the super mean lady came in and just berated me. And I thought in my head, what would I, what would I, what did I want to say to her that I didn't get to say? And that's in the monologue where he just oh. goes off at this woman and says, you know, he, he says everything in his head that he wants to say to her. And I wrote it for a guy in my theater company, this very straight laced guy. And he was in like a, 
it was this this isn't how I dressed at this job, but white white button down collared shirt with a with a black apron that you know goes to the floor and it's very formal. And his I wrote it for Mark, um, and Mark Wilson is his name, and his delivery. It was the writer's dream because when he got on stage and performed it in front of the theater company, it was exactly as it was in my head. And the audience was roaring. But here's what's so cool. Because in L.A., all of us relate to being bartenders and servers. So many men and women came to me and said, hey, I want to perform that monologue for my comedic monologue for this audition. Is that okay?" So it was unisex. And it had these universal themes and different actors brought different things to it. So you can have something in your head that's written for a specific actor. But if it has those universal themes and it gave these people the permission to say all the shit you cannot say to a customer. Like I I threw down in his head. He was picking her up and throwing through her through the glass window and like and saying all the stuff maybe Eminem would say in a song. But we can't say that in real life. And writing gives us permission. To, yes. to say what we want because we can't do it in real life but it, it, it's such a channel and, and it, sure I wrote it but I knew that other people we think about that what does another person what will other people relate to and what kind of role that that, that maybe um do does does certain actors they want to play but they haven't had that opportunity right so um that's that's where it gets really fun you know and that's what you mean Donna by it, it evolves. You know, you start with yes. what you know, because I could have I could have come from the ego and gone, oh, no other bartender thinks like this. No one ever has their snap moment. It's about me. Oh, it's not about me. This is something that all <laughs> servers and bartenders are thinking at one point. And you have to be professional when you're on the clock. You can't say anything. But I knew after that shift, I was done with my bartending career. I, knew, I, knew, I was like, I'm done. I'm ready to get health insurance and 401k. I'm, if I want to throw a customer out the window, I think this chick is up. So anyways, but um, yeah. And I loved being a bartender to shout out to all my former regulars. But uh, anyway, so yeah, that's yeah. uh but Donna, I know we're going to end it with the inside the actor studio questions, Mike, unless you have more, I'm sure you have more Donna, you're going to be a recurring guest. We're not going to end it here. But okay. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I just wanted to know too. I mean, when it, when it, what made you say I'm going to self publish Maud and not say I'm going to go with a publisher and, and how do you get a publisher? I mean, do they, they oh. come to you or. Well, uh, I submitted a few things to agents and the last one, now this, I'm going back now before Maud. Um, I thought it was really good. And you know, you're your own worst critic. <clears throat> so I submitted it and uh, I got to an agent. Don't forget submitting to publishers. They want you to send your work through an agent. And he said, Oh, we really like this. And uh, we're going to take a good look at it. Please do not submit it to anyone else. So I waited. And a month later, I dropped in because you don't want to pester them. Don't call us. We'll call you who applies to writing to. So I did send an email. And how's it going over there? He says, oh, don't give up. We're, we're still considering it. Well, this went on for six months before I finally, as we've decided to pass. And I'm at an age where I don't know how many six months I have. And I am writing two to three books a year. So I said, I'd rather have them sitting on the shelf than floating around from one agent to another. Because once you submit it to one, 
uh, you have to wait and then you send it to the next. Some of them will take multiples, but not very many. Uh, and so I'm just writing them and turning them over to the editor and then turning them over to the daughter who does the covers and setups and everything for me. And then to Amazon. I can't tell you how much I love Amazon. They gave me this venue mm -hmm. and they're tough. You know, if you leave a typo, they will let you know you need a correction on page 128. Wow. I like that. Yeah, I like that's that. awesome. I, I, I can't stand it even when I text a typo. I have to correct it. <laughs> but that's good, yeah. though, that they, they make sure because otherwise, you know, it's out there. Yeah. And they you never get all of them. Um, yeah. More advice for beginners. Uh, when you write your first draft, write everything. We all know what Hemingway said about first drafts, do we? What did he say? I won't use the word first draft of everything is. You won't day. use the word. I love it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I'm He's looking right, at though. a TV screen. So, uh, so write your first draft, write everything that comes into your head. Okay. Write it as true and as real as you can get it. And then walk away for a while. Mm -hmm. When you go back and read it, you're going to know what needs to be cut. Gotcha. If you can get rid of a word get rid of a word, like, don't tell me you sat down. If you sat, we know you were going in that direction. So you didn't sit down, you sat. You didn't stand up, you stood. Oh, interesting, mm. okay. Uh, get rid of every excess word. That's Stephen King advice. Yeah. Um, that's the words people don't want to read. And he will give you a list of words to look up for got, had that was make it as active as you can but I think more importantly put as much truth in it as you can you know I have people tell me what are you going to we want you to write your life story and I said I have if you read my books in one or the other you know my whole life you don't know which character maybe is me but I'm in all of them in some capacity or another Love it. Fascinating. Mike, anything else? No, this is great. Thank you, Donna. This is really, really uh, a good, uh, good reminder and, and good, good insight, good information on what it what it means to create. And we we all kind of you know have to keep that in mind. We get in our own way sometimes, and you don't have to worry about offending you know people you know. Like you said, sometimes you have to write what you know. You lot of, you always have to write what you know and. And, and sometimes people that we know are going to bleed into those stories and, 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 and that's okay. Like it's a life, it's human, it's being human and, and, yes. and, it and it's important reminder. Yeah. You know, who said something that I, Mike, if I haven't sent this to you, I need to. And Donna, if I haven't sent this to you, I need to, uh, you guys know Sling Blade, you know, Billy Bob mm -hmm. Thornton. He wrote this in yes. nine days. It was a short first and then a feature and tremendous. Uh, I keep saying tremendous. I blame my friend, Patrick Gordon. He says tremendous. He's my colleague at work. He's my, uh, long, mm -hmm. long Island colleague. He listens to all these podcasts. He's reading Maud right now in Long Island, oh, Wall Street guy. He wants to be one of the producers and trust me, he's going to kill it as a producer. Cause mm -hmm. we know how to capital raise. 
So he's reading Maud and he said to me, I want to read it in like three weeks. I don't want to, I don't want to read it over two months. I want to sit down and get it done. But every podcast he listens to and he takes notes and we go through all his notes on the podcast. So he's going to listen to this and have notes. I love him. So, all right. But uh, what was I going to say? Oh, Billy Bob Thornton. Wow. That was an ADD moment, but let's circle back. All right. So Billy Bob Thornton, uh, he was on Oprah's master's class and there's a, there's a piece, my favorite piece where he says, I've never been the same since my brother died. And it's something you nev- you're never going to get over it. That's the best advice I could give to anybody. You're never going to get over it. And he yeah. says, there's this part of me that's always half depressed at any given moment and half okay. But I'm always on guard that I'm always, I don't trust happiness anymore. And he said, you need to write that book or write that movie that honor these people. And that's how you honor them and keep them alive. And that hit me like a ton of bricks that that's why we're artists. That's why we create art and to make people feel and to give a voice to grief and to give a voice to the human experience. And that's what Maud does. It's a visceral experience reading this book. Uh, I had, I remember after I read chapter one, I was at my mother's house. I was visiting home from LA and I went downstairs and I think I was up at seven, which you know, I never am Donna. And I just sat across from my mom and I was just bawling after one chapter. And she was like, did you finally start reading Maud? And I was like, I couldn't talk. (laughs) It was like the ugly cry. And this is my family. My mother's in the book. You're in the book, my grandmother. But it's just this woman that overcame so much hardship and she just never gave up. This is a woman that got through the Great Depression traveled through her by car uh, an old car to Detroit from Missouri during the Great Depression then had to go on foot which we filmed some of in the in the trailer and just it's so smart that Shelby said write it in the first person because it's about her perspective and just never giving up no matter how hard life gets and we're in an yes, area sir. right now living in a pandemic and this this mod talks about the Spanish flu of 1918 uh, we're on the verge, I hate to say it, of another recession. We're, there's th- certain things that are still parallel Yeah, 2022. So your writing, Donna, is remarkable. You did your grandmother justice. It's such an example of what Billy Bob Thornton was saying. You gave her, I'm looking at Maud, the, the book on my shelf right now. I just looked at it. Um, you gave, you honored your grandmother's story. And it's not about making her the perfect person with no flaws. And it's not about that. It's about the it, bringing life to the human experience. And it's about, you know, I said this to my mother when we made Secret, because it's based on my parents' marriage. But I kept saying to her, this isn't about us. It's bigger than us. It's bigger than us. And when people come up to you in a movie theater and say, hey, I lost my husband or I lost my father, too, or I relate to what happens when, you know, in the horse, whatever it is, then, you know, you did the work as an artist, when people relate to components of your story and uh, Mike, people relate to that in your feature film, maybe someday about being afraid to become an adult. And what does that mean to become a parent? And what do you lose? And all like, so it's, it's, that's when you're onto something, when you know, it's not all about you. I think that's when we're, we're onto something. So I can't uh, put into words how talented I think you are, how much I love you, how much I admire you. And so much of what you said, I was like, oh my gosh, I was uh, on the school newspaper in high school too. Like I, we're, we're so much alike and it's just, it's, uh, that has been my mentor and source of support as an artist my whole life, you know? So, uh, yeah. And always encouraged me to become an actor and never said, 
you're not going to do that. What are you doing? You're not going to make money that way, you know? So thank you for that. And um, are we ready to do the Inside the Actor Studio question? Dive in. Sure. Let's do it. All right, let's get good after it. So James Lipton, you know him, Donna, um, also from Detroit. Let's do it. Uh, what is your favorite word? Persevere. Ooh, that might be my favorite answer so far. Uh, so what's your least favorite word? Fear. Mm. Another good one. Uh, what turns you on? Besides the coffee. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Love that. Yes. Friendship. Your answers are making me smile. They're all. I don't have. I don't have a huge number of friends, but I have. Here I go again. Three that I cherish, and I've always been fortunate that way. And it's Jean. Who is the other two? Sandy. Mm -hmm. And Marianne. And I lost Shelby and another childhood friend last year. So I still have three. I remember that. And I'm so sorry for your loss, but those people are, they're always with us, you know, but I mean, talking about good female friends, I understand why you're so emotional. I so get it. I said, they're like, they're more like sisters and they have your back through everything. They are. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, wow. Such great answers. Okay. Here's another one. What turns you off? Um, well, I have a friend and I will call him that whom I despise because he's <laughs> such, he's such a racist Ooh. that I am ta daily take, he doesn't know it. Oh, geez. Can you believe that uh, he yes. doesn't get it? I, I do so, believe it. Usually, that's usually the case. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm taking him to task. Mm -hmm. He's not getting any better. So I don't know why I don't give up. But I well, don't. remember, remember what we said about Maud's trauma attached to a detach from her child. It all comes from something. Trauma response. Yes. It comes from something yeah. where he is comes from. Yeah. It comes from something from when he was a child but he uh, does let me speak my piece so that there keeps you go me going. there you go yeah, that's good yeah, yeah. don't so, give up yeah yeah uh what sound or noise do you love oh moonlight sonata mm -hmm. babies laughing i love it when babies are laughing um can't think of anything else at the moment. The sound of pages turning. Uh, do you love the sound of your printer printing? Because that means you just finished something that, oh, I love that. Uh, what sound or noise do you hate? Oh, I can't think of anything right offhand. I'm not crazy about a lot of today's music, but that's because I <laughs> I'm not either. No, it's terrible. Today. Don't, don't like. Started. Okay, let me qualify. I don't like heavy metal. Mm -hmm. I just. I don't I'm either. Sorry. Actually, I love all music, but I've never been big into heavy metal. Uh, everything but. Like heavy metal. Yeah. No. Well, Almost okay. everything else. All right, you wouldn't quote Hemingway, but what's your favorite curse word? 
Well, I've been known to drop the F bomb on a key. <laughs> but here's the thing. Awesome. It's you you have to use it sparingly or mm. there's no effect. True. Yeah. Yeah. If you've seen um, Robert Dernero in uh, the Jake LaMotta story, it gets tiresome mm. and it dulls the edge of the characters because it's every other word. Great movie, great story, great acting and directing, but come on. I know they talk like that. I've known a couple that, but it does wear you down. Mm-hmm. I'm just smiling over here. It's great. Okay. So here's a great question. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Well, I'm really into the songwriting thing. And I've been trying to find somebody to write the music for me. Mm. I hear it in my head. When I write the lyrics, I can hear the music. But I don't have, I, I, and I do know how to read, but I don't know how to write it. I, I don't have uh, composition skills. And I haven't been able to find anybody to do that. If they could listen to me sing, they, all they'd have to do is put the <laughs> correct mm-hmm. note, not the one I sang necessarily, it would give them the idea. So mm-hmm. I... I do want to get the music published, uh, if not recorded. Did you hear my song, Forgotten Heroes? I did. I shared it, heard it. It was great. And you just put it into the universe. You need a composer. Well, I put it on Facebook and asked everybody I knew to share it. Hopefully somebody who can do the charts will say, let me do the charts for you. But so far that hasn't happened. I think it's very on point today. You know, it's about mm-hmm. um, the military families. You know, everybody gives a medal to the soldier. Nobody gives a medal to the wife or the mother or the children. So this is in recognition of them. Yeah, that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, last question. If heaven exists, what would you want God to say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Good job. (laughs) Love it. Amazing. So Donna, uh, to be continued. Yeah. Amazing conversation. Yeah. You're a delight, Donna. You inspired me today and it's an honor to meet you. So thank you for your time doing this. Now I got to go look you up. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Yeah. All right, you guys. Thank you you for having me here. No, thanks for doing this. Donna Foley, DonnaFoleyMabry.com, everybody. Maud spelled M-A-U-D-E. Get it online. Read the book. And uh, if you go to Amazon, you can read the first few pages. Yep. And you can also hear a sample of the audiobook, and you'll hear my uh, voice in there. Hear the voice, yes. <laughs> I have so many people say, oh, whoever that actress was, who that was just perfect. Yes. <laughs> I know. <laughs> my favorite, and the fun parts of reading all the male parts and dropping into the low voice for George. So yeah, we could, we could go on. All right, Donna, love you. You're amazing. Thank you yeah. for getting up so early Thank on you. West Coast time for us to do yeah. this. And uh, we'll be talking soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks, Donna. Thanks, Donna.